Welcome to Author Conversations, presented this week by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. This week, we discuss a site whose role is not well known, but was vital in bringing about an end to the Civil War. The site, Fort Clinch in Fernandina, Florida. Even though Fernandina was tucked away in the far southern reaches of the Confederacy, Fort Clinch had been abandoned to federal forces by March of 1862. It proved a boon to the Union war effort, and the island became a haven for runaway slaves, with many joining the Federal Army. The military occupation of this vital seaport helped end the war, and the Reconstruction period that followed bore witness to Union and Confederate veterans working together to bring Fernandina into a golden era of prosperity. Author and local historian Frank A. Ovelt III captures the vital and undertold story of Amelia Island during the Civil War. Frank Begin has a volunteer with the Florida Park Service in the late 1980s as a historical interpreter in the Fort Clinch Living History Program. After college, he accepted a position with the agency and was assigned to Fort Taylor State Historic Site at Key West, Florida. Later transferring to Fort Clinch State Park where he currently serves as a Park Service Specialist having served 27 years with the agency. He is a published author of two books with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. He continues to serve the community of Fernandina Beach as a local historian on military history of the island. He was president of the Duncan Lamont Clinch Historical Society, former board member of the Amelia Island Museum of History, and is a member of the American Historical Association, Society for Military History, and Council on America's Military Past. He is an avid reader, lecturer, and collector of American military antiques. Frank, thanks for joining me. Yep, sure. So let's start with the early history of the area. Um, I know you're at work okay. and you don't have a lot of time, so I'll try not to keep you too long. Um, okay. Let's start with the early history of Amelia Island around the area that we're going to be okay. talking about. So before the Civil War, there's quite a history and a military history with the place changing hands. Can you give us an idea of the importance of the site even before the Civil War? Sure. Yeah, so um, this north end of Amelia Island is um, heavily active uh, the French arrived here much earlier in 1562. Uh, they were defeated by the Spanish under Pedro Mendez in 1565, which he also established St. Augustine, which is the oldest settlement in North America. But up here on what is Amelia Island, or was called Santa Maria by the Spanish, um, in um, 1567, the Spanish built a fortification. And the Spanish opened up a mission site here to convert the Tamuquin Indians to Christianity. And that pretty much went along. And then in 1763, Florida changed hands, and it was British rule at that time. And then in 1783, it went back to Spanish, and we have what is known as the Second Spanish Period. And that during that Second Spanish Period, there's a really a lot of things happening here, which is now Fernandina in the Second Spanish Period. In 1811, they plot the town. They name it Fernandina after King Ferdinand of Spain, who at the time was imprisoned uh, by Napoleon and uh, wasn't on the throne. But there's, um, it's the only track of land to have eight separate flags, also known as the Isle of Eight Flags, to claim ownership. You have the French, you have the Spanish, you have the British. You have, of course, the United States and the Confederate States of America. And then you have these lesser flags, which is the um, patriots, which were Americans living in Spanish Fernandina, who wanted the United States government to annex Amelia Island in this northeast corner of Florida for the United States. And things were going good, but um, the War of 1812 was in its uh, infancy and was starting to build up. And eventually, President Madison 
um, dropped the whole idea of annexing Northeast Florida to focus on, of course, the War of 1812. And so the Patriots had their time here on the island. They had their flag. Then after the Patriots comes a fellow by the name of um, uh, uh, Gregor McGregor. And he's a uh, Scottish mercenary fighting for uh, South American independence under Spanish rule, trying to get rid of the Spanish. And he takes control of the island with a mercenary force, routes a small Spanish garrison from uh, Old Town Fernandina, and basically plants his flag. But his time is short because money runs out and he's not getting support, and so he has to leave. And at that time, two of his lieutenants take over, and they are known as the Republic of Florida Forces. And they're holding on to the island, and they actually fight it out with the Spanish about a mile away from where Fort Clinch sits. And they do that in 1817. And, of course, uh, with that, there's another change. Uh, that's when the privateer, Louis Ari, takes over the island and uh, the town, which is old Fernandina, was just called Fernandina back then. And he basically is a privateer, um, and he controls everything here. But that's a threat to you know, security of the United States. You can't have a privateer operating out of Fernandina when we're sitting on the international border between Spanish Florida and Georgia, which is the United States of America. So U.S. forces are sent over. They take control of the island, the fort site, the town, and they wait till Spain uh, regains control here, which they do. And then, of course, in 1821, uh, Spain sells Florida under the Adamus Onus Treaty uh, to the United States. Uh, for five million dollars, and Florida opens up as a U.S. territory. Yeah, and so when they open up as a U.S. territory, um, why is this? You know, obviously it has changed hands a lot, and there's been um, a lot of uh, you know, obviously military different like you mentioned, eight different mm -hmm. flags planted there. Yeah, in the area. Eight. So that I'm guessing is going to play a role into why the United States government decides to build a start building a fort. Uh, near Fernandina. Yeah, the um, the importance, what had happened was, is after um, the acquisition of Florida and becoming a territory, the United States government um, tasked the Army's Corps of Engineers to survey, of course, the new territories. Mm. And they they surveying Florida. And Florida is a vast peninsula, as, as any, everybody knows when you look at a map. But what they do is they focus in on the established seaport communities. Where are they? Where is the greatest population at? And how thriving are these seaports as far as commerce, trade? And Fernandina, it ranks up there. Um, it's a thriving seaport already established under Spanish and British rule and now United States rule. It's also uh, right across from Fernandina, across the Cumberland Sound, is St. Mary's, Georgia, mm -hmm. which is also a thriving seaport as well. You have a natural deep water harbor basin of calm waters for ship anchorage. You have a uh, channel that can accommodate any vessel afloat, 17 draft of water at low tide, 25 feet draft of water at high tide, so any ship could get in. So they basically outline to plan to build, when the money is available, a series of fortifications to guard the major seaports and waterways. And they had already done this in South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, New York, Maine, you know, uh, Boston, of course, Massachusetts. Uh, so they were, they were definitely were looking at that. And when the funds do become available, they start building these fortifications. They build um, the first forts are constructed over in the Panhandle at Pensacola, Florida, because that's a major seaport. Uh, 
And then the forts in the Florida Keys are constructed um, right after statehood in 1845. And then two years later, Fort Clinch is started in 1847. And their focus is to guard the major seaports and waterways already established that also are growing and where there's a large uh, civilian population at. And so they're trying to protect the major seaports and waterways from what they would believe would be a, a foreign threat. We had just fought two wars with the British, um, but we also had the rise of Napoleon, and he's toppling European countries left and right. And if he continues to be victorious, will he turn his attention to America next? You know, And so there's always a threat, an international threat. And so they build the forts with the idea of a strong deterrent. We'd rather have it and not need it, but it's there if we do need it. Absolutely. And so Fernadine is selected for that. And the, you know, there was a tie here to where I live here in Charleston in the book, because in December of 1860, South Carolina will secede from the Union. And even before the ordinance for secession was even signed on December 20th, there's a letter, which is dated two days before, um, from Joseph Finnegan, who was captain of the yep. Fernandina Volunteers. And he sent a letter to the mayor of Charleston, Charles McCheath, uh, I believe that's how you say it, offering the services yeah. of his men, if needed, in taking the forts in Charleston Harbor. And today, though, we see forts, and we understand forts to be U.S. government property. Yeah. What was the understanding or led to a belief at that time that forts were a property of states and not the federal government? Well, that is where, when the secession of southern states takes place, they basically view that if that site, that fort site or military installation is within their state, it is now the property of the citizens of the state. They also have an opinion that though these sites were built to protect the United States, ultimately they were built to protect the citizens living right there in that geographical area. And so that means that they're there to protect the citizens of Florida and the citizens of Georgia. So they also have by uh pretty much right to take it to assume occupation of the site they no longer are part of the united states and therefore they feel that any of this federal installations within their states are theirs now and they will be used to defend the citizens of the state against an aggressive force should that happen yeah and so in the book though you know the taking of fort clinch is uh not taken by the confederacy it's taken by floridian forces Yes, they are. And that's a that's a big distinction. Um, a lot of people just, you know, I guess um, it's just simpler sometimes just to say they're Confederates. But mm -hmm. when you really get down to it, they're not Confederates. They are state militia forces called up by the direction of the governor to act on behalf of the governor and the citizens of Florida and to provide for the defense of the state. And so they are state militia forces. And then later on, They'll eventually be sworn into the provisional army of the Confederate States of America, which will allow them to receive goods on a national level instead of just on a state level. I, I guess, you know, a lot of people, you know, when states secede, you know, they basically are claiming their sovereignty. Hey, and they have to provide for their forces and for the citizens. But since we have the, the formation of the Confederate States of America, now we have a national organization that is waging war for 
southern independence and its rights, and therefore these forces are going to be drawn up and then uh, mustered into that provisional army and then, of course, the standard army of the Confederacy. And that's what we have here. They're state militia forces, and they remain that way until much later in the year of 1861 when they're eventually sworn into the Confederate army. And there's also some controversy over who's being sworn in and why are they and how are they mustered in and stuff. So there's questions as to that as well. Yeah, I always find that um, part also of the Civil War very interesting also. And, uh, you know, even with the whole home guard part of the different states, too, and how that affect, you know, it, it just overall um, parts of the Civil War. That's, that's just the little nuances um, yeah. of Civil War study that's always interested me. Um, but when the Floridians took control, it was a drastically different takeover of the fort than when, say, Fort you know what happened with Fort Sumter. Um, oh, yeah. And that was very interesting to me to read about, too. Um, yeah. Th- uh, you know, there's a little bit of paperwork involved. There. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit and about so, how that went? Yeah, so um, what they do here is... The the militia is here in the town of Fernandina. The Fernandina Volunteers, led by Captain Finnegan, they're here. They've been joined by the um, uh, Jefferson Davis Rifles of Nassau County and the Palatka Guard by March of 1861. They know the fort is up here at the north end of the island. People in the town have worked at the fort, have been employed as uh, craftsmen and construction workers on the fort site. They also know that there are no cannons in the fort and there's no official U.S. military presence at the fort site. So though they say that the fort is theirs, they do that verbally. Hey, we, you know, we're letting you know that Fort Clinch is the property of the state. They don't formally occupy the fort site until April 8th, 1861, which is interesting because that's just a few days before Fort Sumter Mm -hmm. is bombarded by South Carolinian militia forces. And so they march out the military road from Old Town Fernandina, and they come right out to the fort site, and they enter the fort. And, of course, there is no U.S. military presence. J.A. Walker, who was the fort foreman and keeper, is there with two uh, workers, and they were working on the sodding of the ramparts in the fort site. And he basically tells them, there's no military presence here, and and so on. And so, yeah, the, the, the place is yours. And they're able to uh, erect the first flagpole in the fort site prior to that there was no flagpole and they raised the secessionist flag of florida and they now officially have fort clinch and the fort is a lot different than what it looks today um the fort was only partially built there were only two completed full walls only one completed bastion there were only three buildings in the fort that were completed the various uh buildings in the fort were in stages of unfinished and still waiting to be completed. And, of course, not a single piece of artillery in the site. Wow. So it's a bloodless takeover for them. Yeah. <laughs> it's the fact that, they, you know, when they come in, it's the, you know, they're working on the sod. And I just, I love the fact that the gentleman just basically says, have at it. It's yours. <laughs> what am I going to do yeah. against you? It's, it's, a, it's yeah, an amazing it's story to me. These little yeah, you know, stories. Yeah, he's told, see, what happens earlier on is, um, uh, an Army engineering officer is sent down on the direction of General Totten, who was the chief of the Corps of Engineers, Captain Woodbury. 
And Woodbury arrives here in Fernandina at the height that all this uh, secessionist has already taken place and the militia forces are assembled. And he's here to settle the U.S. government accounts as it relates to Fort Clinch. So he's paying off workers that hadn't been paid and closing out business accounts. And he is approached by Colonel Butler of the state militia forces here at Fernandina. And Butler tells him that any sale uh, related to Fort Clinch, we would concede... We, we believe that to be illegal because the state has, by basically uh, verbal authority, has taken possession of the site. It's ours. And then Woodbury, of course, is telling his superior in the letter that we have in the book that, hey, you know, I, I settled the government accounts to the best of my ability. And Colonel Butler told me that the state has assumed authority of the site. And I assume that any day now they will take formal possession of the site. And that letter was written on April 4th. And four days later, the state militia forces actually occupy Fort Clinch. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And a little bit later on, I'm going to get to another uh, letter. It's a report that you have that I just I love the fact that you included the whole thing in the book. But before we do, I want to get to another engineer. Um, and not a lot of people who um, who just casually know about the war know that this man was an engineer. Um but he would become the most well-known Confederate general, and he was inspecting coastal defenses at the beginning of the war. Um, we're talking about uh, Robert E. Lee. What role, yes. if any, did Lee play in the armament and the defenses of Fort Clinch and surrounding areas? Because there, you know, there's there's also batteries. We know, you know, for instance, here in Charleston, there was that there wasn't yes. just Fort Moultrie and Sumter and Johnson. There were also batteries and floating batteries here too. Yeah. So there would be batteries in support. And what role did he play in the decision, if any, to withdraw Confederate forces from the island? So um, Lee is um, what's going on through 1861, um, through the early stage of secession here in Florida over the summer, is they build a four-gun battery uh, southeast of the fort. And they're kind of, um, I want to say, in some term, they're kind of like uh, very relaxed. They're thinking that the United States government is not going to challenge them. They're going to have their independence. So we'll, we'll do a little bit, but we don't have to do much. And as it progresses along, they start to see that that's not going to happen. Um, we get into the first major land battle and so on. Well, Lee, uh, Robert E. Lee, assumes command of the Department uh, of South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And it's based in South Carolina's headquarters. And his job is to see to the defenses of these three southern states now. And he is being inundated with requests from everybody. We need guns. We need shoes. We need ammunition. We need cannons. We need leather goods. We need everything possible. And he's trying to get that sent out to them. And here at Fernandina, they are making the request, if you want us to defend the Cumberland Sound and the ports of Fernandina and St. Mary's, we need supplies. We need logistics. We need it. And we need it bad. Ultimately, they wind up with 33 pieces of artillery. They build a number of additional artillery batteries. But there's one thing that is constantly short on, and that is powder and ammunition. Mm -hmm. And they do not have enough of that to sustain themselves in a prolonged bombardment with a hostile enemy force um, that has the ability to bring in supplies. And so... Finally, Lee comes down here, takes a tour of inspection, and this is where it's really interesting, and I try to focus on this in the book. When he comes down in January of 1862 to take his tour of inspection, he's impressed with the defenses. 
he makes some recommendations for this and this and this, and he assures the military personnel here that um, they're going to get what they need. We're going to make that happen. We're going to direct equipment, munitions, artillery be sent to you. Um, and then he leaves, and they're waiting for this to come. However, there's something else happening further north. The defenses at St. Simons, uh, Brunswick, Georgia, Jekyll Island are not up to the task of repulsing a federal invasion there. And Lee starts to see, um, I guess, that the federal Navy, if they can enter through the waterway there, will be able to traverse the intercoastal waterway down to Fernandina and will be able to take the fort and the batteries from the rear. Shallow draft vessels will be able to navigate that waterway, and they will put the batteries in an awkward position to be able to defend themselves. That compounded with the lack of munitions, and of course those defenses not at Brunswick, St. Simons, and Jekyll Island, ultimately almost a month later in mid-February forces lead to authorize a withdrawal of Southern forces, Confederate forces from Fernandina and Amelia Island and Cumberland Island. And he details in his letter what the, what they should do to get everything out of here. You know, take the guns off of Cumberland Island, move the guns from around Fort Clinch, get them to the railroad yard, get all that moved out of place, put Quaker guns, dummy cannons that are painted black logs in place to give the enemy the impression we do have artillery. But he's also under constant pressure from the department commander here in Florida, uh, which is James Hayward Trapier. Trapier was a South Carolinian, graduate of West Point, served in the Mexican War, to become a planter after leaving the Army after the Mexican War. He was appointed the department commander for Middle and East Florida. And he is of the opinion that without the needed supplies, and the fact that the enemy will make use of the waterway behind Cumberland Island to bring in their naval ships, that the area is undefendable. And therefore, he's pressuring Lee to ultimately push toward giving the orders to evacuate. And so finally, Lee uh, gets all the intelligence, looks over it, and makes a decision that they're going to strategically withdraw from here. And that's really disheartening, too, for the citizens of Fernandina and the southern forces on Amelia Island, because in northeast Florida, here on Amelia Island at Fort Clinch, this was the largest gathering of Confederate forces in 1861 in northeast Florida. We won't see those numbers again until the Battle of Olusky that takes place in February 1864, and it's end is a Confederate victory. So for that, to all this buildup, all this uh, pressure to build new batteries, mount more cannons, and safeguard the citizens, now basically we're pulling out. Wow. And when they pull out, the Union is already starting to think, are they not, about the Anaconda plan that they're going to institute, which is to blockade all southern ports. But to do this, they're going to need southern bases to operate from. And you've included in the book this great report, the Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, about what would what would make Amelia Island and Fernandina and Fort Clinch such a great base of operations? Um, did you have that letter? Do y'all have that at the fort or have access to it at the fort? Did you have to yeah. do research for it? 
That, that original letter is in the National Archives. I had the opportunity to actually see the original letter upon request. Um, of course, we have a copy of it. It's also published in the official records of the War of Rebellion, the compendium there, that was done by the U.S. government um, after the war was over. And it's ironic that that letter is dated July 5th, 1861, and the first major land battle of the Civil War has not even happened yet, and that would be the Battle of Bull Run, also known as Manassas, mm-hmm. to the Southern forces. And they're already talking about how important Fernandina is. And I think that was a missed piece of history, that we're going to put up a naval blockade, and to be able to make that naval blockade be efficient, we're going to have to have a base to operate from. And we're looking at the entire coastline from Hampton Roads, Virginia, all the way down to Key West, and what stands out for them? Fernandina. Deepwater port, calm waters, good ship anchorage. It's a mariner's port. Ships can traverse the waterway at different sizes. It has the refitting, the coaling, the watering stations already established because it was a commerce port for uh, merchant shipping. And it has a fort site that can provide protection to the Navy while at anchorage. And so they go through all the reasons why they should gain control of it. And they focus on that. And then, of course, they assemble that large amphibious force at Hampton Roads, Virginia, in October of 1861. They sail south. They capture uh, Port Royal, Beaufort, Hilton Head, South Carolina. And then, boom, they leapfrog. And they come down here and they take Fernandina on March 3rd, 1862. And the South Atlantic fleet is going to be, the most of its ships, the majority of them, are going to be based out of the port of Fernandina, where they can take on the supplies, give liberty to the crews, um, also refit ships if they have to because of the calm waters. They can do that in the harbor basin. And so it shows how important Fernandina was and how much Fernandina is going to play a part in the naval blockade of maintaining the fleet from Fernandina north up toward North Carolina and Fernandina south toward the Florida Keys. Just the the foresight is just incredible. You know, we don't think about that um, offhand when you're just thinking about uh, the Civil War unless you really dig into the history. And that's why it's so important to dig into the history and to go to battlefields and to go to historic sites like Fort Clinch. Uh, Like, you know, uh, Fort Sumter, of course, is a big site to visit. But I encourage people when they come here to to Charleston to go to Fort Moultrie and visit the history there because there's um, a lot of uh, more Civil War history, I feel, at Fort Moultrie and at smaller forts that people, you know, don't think about a lot. And there's so much, you know, and Fort Clinch is a site that has so much history because if it wasn't for Fort Clinch, um, the Union, you know, like you talk about in the book, the Union victory would not have come about as, you know, as quickly as it would have. Um, such yeah. an important site. The naval blockade was so effective. Um, the end. I mean, General Scott. You know, hey, we really want to take care of the South here in this regard. We need to put up a naval blockade. We need to block all their southern seaports from receiving or exporting any goods to support their war machine. And you know, to be able to come up with that, and then for them to sit there and have this meeting, and you, even though the letter's dated July fifth, that that conversation was going on most likely weeks and months ahead of that, where they were all working together to look at maps and drawings and figure out where we need to go, where can we support the naval blockade from. And ultimately, that blockade is so efficient that 
1864, they pretty much start releasing the blockade because they've done such a great job of cutting off supplies to the Southern Confederacy. They capture Mobile in June of 1864. That shuts down in the Gulf of Mexico activities there. And their next big move is Fort Fisher in North Carolina at Wilmington. They're going to push the to knock that out, and that's going to take place in the beginning of 1865. So they really have cut them off. But it's it's that foresight to, to think ahead and be like, how are we going to shut them down? And then plan it all out and then execute it. And I believe that Fort Clinch, Fernandina, the, and the military occupation by the federal forces, Army and Navy, are a major contributing to helping to bring the war to a, a rapid end. Yeah. And we've, I know you're still at work and I, I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, but we have, you know, we've taken listeners up really to the point. I know we've talked, touched just now a little bit um, past that, but we've really taken listeners to the point of where the Union takes control of the fort and the island. But we want people to buy the book and to read that story. Yeah. And Frank, you also have stories of personal accounts of civilians along with soldiers uh, and evacuating. Uh, you have a pro-Union citizen among secessionists and the accounts of soldiers yeah. and officers. And that's what makes a book like this so interesting and personal. And yes, we have the overarching account of the fort and the town and the war, but the personal accounts, the stories of individuals are what really give us the connections to the past. Um, you know, and do you have any accounts from the books that stand out in your mind? I know Harriet Tubman was there. Uh, you have the pro-Union citizen. Um, you have, you know, the USCTs, United States Colored Troops, also come to Fernandina and Fort Clinch. Um, you know, do you have any stories, personal accounts in the, from the book that you've written about that, you know, you might want to share before we go? Yeah, I, I, I would like, you know, commenting about Benjamin Thompson, um, you know, for the family to release those documents and, of course, the Civil War Times to publish that, they published that in the 1970s. But here's a guy who is at Fernandina and is a witness to all of this going on and is able to make his escape from, you know, to the north where eventually he winds up joining the Union Army and comes back as a provost marshal for the Department of the South later in the in the war. And the man that helped him get away was the Florida was the United States Senator David Uly. And he winds up being Uly's jailer at the end of the war. Wow. And it's just a unique story. And he has such an insight into the the sentiment of the people here on Fernandina and you know I, there's a lot of controversy over the Civil War, and but when you start reading the actual accounts of the people that are actually living the experience and bearing the the brunt of it, uh, the combat and the and the living conditions in which they had to endure, you get a sense of what's going on, and I think that you miss a lot of that. And I felt that a lot of those letters that I was able to borrow from families and the ones that I have in my own collection was to give an insight into what life was like, the, the humor of it, but also the, the sadness, the tragedy of it all. Absolutely. Frank, thank you for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Thank you, the audience, for listening. Fort Clinch, Fernandina, and the Civil War is available for pre-order online at ArcadiaPublishing.com and will be available for purchase at your local bookstore beginning August 10th, 2020. I want to thank Jane Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. You can check them out on Facebook by searching for Jane Bill's Unnamed Band Project. If you have questions or future episode ideas, you can reach me by email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. 
as ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. I'll talk with you again soon.